Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. And welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight from the left, the right, and the center over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. A local think tank is thinking about the earnings tax, and so is a Kansas senator. Democrats are thinking about their presidential convention, and conventional wisdom about marijuana no longer seems so wise, plus roast and toast. But we begin with our Newsmaker segment and talk about the mounting toll of violent crimes and homicides in Kansas City, Missouri. Last year's homicide count reached 148. Among those trying to mitigate the problem is our guest today. She's the executive director of KC Mothers in Charge, Rosalind Temple, a mother herself who has lost a son to violence. Rosalind Temple, welcome to Ruckus. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So how did Mothers in Charge come into existence? Well, you know, I lost my 26-year-old son, November 23rd, 2011, which was Thanksgiving Eve. Still unsolved? Still unsolved. Um, but it basically almost destroyed me. And I was born and raised in Kansas City. This is my city, and I knew I had a fight in me. I heard about an organization based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, started by Dorothy Johnson Spike. 17 years ago today, um, she was in existence. It's called Mothers in Charge. And as a mother, you want you have a fight. It's your child. It's just a bond that you have with your child. So when I heard Mothers in Charge, I knew that was something I needed to be a part of. Mothers in Charge of what? In charge of our situation, of our life, our children's life, what has happened to us, our pain, our grief. That's what we're in charge of. Okay, you have a new project that I believe is funded by a federal grant. And I think the topic is, why are we so angry? Exactly. Um, it's, it's funded by the um, Department of Justice. Uh, Casey Mothers in Charge, we received the grant, 75000 for two years. It is called, why are we enough, so angry? Will that be enough money for two years? That would take us through two years, yes. <laughs> if it was 50, I would still do it okay. because it's a problem we have here in Kansas City because we're angry, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out why are we so angry. At one point in time in my life, I was an angry black woman, a mother raising children, a auntie, a grandmother, didn't know what to do with myself until I had my mind renewed to find out who I was and what I was to become. And that's who I am. I'm, I'm walking in this pain and grief. So as some people in our community don't, don't understand why are we so angry. So I want to address that by going to the homes, going into the homes, visiting, not coming and telling people what to do. We so used to people coming and telling us how to, how to run our house or what we need to do. We're going in just to talk. See, how can we work together in one neighborhood at a time to solve some issues? And it's not a, might not be major issues, but give us some tools. Give them some tools to know how to deal with each other. Maybe it can be something as simple as a neighborhood crime watch. Now, well, when you knock on the door and somebody comes to the door, what do you say to them? Hello, my name is Rosalind Temple. This is KC Mothers in Charge. We're doing a project called Why We're So Angry. We're coming to your neighborhoods to help you to deal with this violence, this crimes that we have going on. How can we help? We want to listen to you. What's your issues? How can you get to know your next door neighbor, neighbor down the street? How y'all can come together and as a whole? Because it's going to take a, a village, a community to do this. I would say come on in and sit down, have a cup of coffee 
coffee, but what are people telling you? That's what they're doing. So we have, after we lunch, we go to the neighborhood, three neighborhoods, three blocks at a time. We go to them neighborhoods. We tap, we ask them what day will be good for the, us to come back out, and we start our home visit last week. Our first home visit. We went into the homes and sit down and talk, and it, it was so amazing to hear from people in their homes to see what some issues is going on in your neighborhoods. So we have one other home visit today at 11 o'clock. We go into a different homes. So we launched again three, a, a couple of more blocks last week, passed our flyers. So we got seven houses to go in next week. Do they say they're angry about violence and homicide crimes in Kansas City? They're angry about they tired of the gunshots. One thing, they're tired about. They, they're definitely tired about homicides, losing lives, and then just simple things in the home, in the in the community, in their neighbors going on, dumping trash, um, children running around. It could be more than crime. Stealing. It I could see. be more. Little things add up to a crime. Okay. Little bitty things eventually will add up to a homicide. You come into someone's home trying to take them, they will kill you. Let me ask you a couple of final questions. Do you think this project's going to make a measurable difference? I think it will make a difference. I think people will understand. People will know. They know who Casey Mothers in charge is. They know I'm coming from a good place. My heart after losing a child. If I can walk in pain and grief, anybody should be able to get. Stand. And that's how you're going to know if it is successful. By people at the end of, at the end of each at the three months at the end of the initial uh, going to home five. At least we're trying to go do five visits at a time mm -hmm. in one home. After that, we'll do a round. A table discussion just with them neighborhoods that we went in. We come into the a table and we talk about what are some of the core issues that we can address. Rosalind, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for thank coming you. in. I hope you have a lot of success with your program. I truly thank you. Thank you. That is Rosalind Temple. She is executive executive director of KC Mothers in Charge. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Annie Presley is an author, publisher, and GOP fundraiser. Arthur Benson's a longtime and well-known Kansas City attorney. Chris Reeves is a Kansas representative on the Democratic National Committee. And Ron Freeman is a motivational speaker and writer. Welcome to all of you. Thanks very much for coming in. We have a lot to talk about, so let's go. The Show Me Institute is releasing a new report about the earnings tax in Kansas City, Missouri and St. Louis. Not surprisingly, the report says the tax is distortionary and has negative effects on economic and population growth. The founders of the Show Me Institute, Rex Singfield of St. Louis and Crosby Kemper III of Kansas City, have been longtime critics of the 1% earnings tax. Now, across state line in Kansas City, Kansas, State Senator David Haley, a Democrat, has introduced a bill that would enable Kansas counties to impose an earnings tax on Missourians who work in the Sunflower State. No action is immediately expected. The Kansas City, Missouri tax is up for renewal next year. It is said to produce about 40% of the budget, maybe $230 million or more of the city's general fund. So, Annie, does it now appear that the Kansas City earnings tax is so critical to the local government, there's no way for it ever to be voted out? I think there's no way for it ever to be voted out, but I want to tell you why. Because once the citizens realize if they do vote it out, they'll probably just come back and raise your property tax three or four times because they got to have the money. I mean, we can't even fill potholes. So how do we get along with that $230 million for basic services, police, fire, that sort of thing. So once the voters figure that out, and in the meanwhile, the voters also hopefully will be educated and understand that at least almost half of that tax comes from people who don't live in Kansas City, Missouri. 
So athletes, when the Raiders come to play football, they get to pay the 1%. Anybody who lives in Kansas and works in Kansas City, Missouri, gets to pay the 1%. So we get help from others. And if we send it away, we lose that help. And then we also probably triple or quadruple but our Annie, property should, taxes. But should Kansas counties get that same help from Missourians who work there? Well, that's up to them, right? But there is a double taxation at the federal level. So if you are paying the 1%, you live in Kansas, you pay the 1% in Missouri, you can't pay it again in Kansas. So they would have to level the playing field by figuring out who they can tax in their town. Well, the thing is, Art, if it's passed in Kansas, it will not only affect Missourians who work in Kansas, it will affect Kansans who work in Kansas or live in Kansas. Well, I I agree that's true. I I think we're worrying about something that's never going to happen. David Haley's a great guy, but that bill's not going to get out of committee. But if it does and it goes to a vote, that's up to the Kansans. But Kansas City's lucky to have it because it's a progressive tax. The more you earn, the more you pay. And if if it were replaced by a property tax, and that would be extremely regressive, uh, I, I just don't ever see it being voted out in Kansas City. Well, Ron, we don't think that Rex Singfield and Crosby Kemper III are stupid men. They must <laughs> think there is something wrong with the earnings tax. What do they think is wrong? Well, I think it, it hampers economic development. I mean, it's it's a dissuader. It pushes people away. I mean, I, I deliberately don't live in Kansas City, so I don't have to pay the earnings tax. Uh, but, but, and that's, but I think a lot of people make that decision. I do think there's a reality, though. Right now, you have if you're used to getting $230 million from someone, you're not going to say, we're going to give it back. So, I mean, they're going to really push hard for voters to, to keep that thing in place. And, and obviously, you're dependent on it now. If you take it away, where's the money come from to fix that problem? So, uh, they've kind of made their case. But I think Crosby Kemper and um, has, I mean, obviously, they've got a great idea. I think we ought to repeal it. It's hard to say it pushes people away. I don't think there is any data on that. That's kind of a supposition some people make. Kansas City's economy seems to rise and fall with the general regional economy either way. Uh, I, I, I don't. Well, I, I mean, I know a lot of people, and again, it's anecdotal. And don't, but, right. but it's a reality. It's not that data. People don't, but uh, don't come to Kansas City for that reason. I think too, it's interesting that if it's if it's a good thing for Missouri, why wouldn't it be a good thing for Kansas? But yeah, we say in Kansas, it's not a good idea. Uh, and I do think it's simply you get used to government used to taking money, and they want to take more. I, I should note that now that uh, Crosby Kemper has become a federal <laughs> official, he uh, has officially removed himself from activities at the Show Me Institute. Uh, Chris, some people think that this impedes business development. Art was just saying he doesn't think so. What is your assessment? You know, what I really think is if we thought that, I would, I would be asking Vice President Pence, because in Indiana, every single one of their counties has a county level income tax, all 92 of them. And one of the things that we've seen is, is that this is a good way for counties and cities to support themselves. You're right to bring in outside revenue, football teams is one example, but also people who work there, live elsewhere. It prevents rural communities from entirely paying from city communities. It prevents states from bailing them out. It's much more progressive than regressive. But in the end, the big question is, could they get rid of it? There's just no way that they can do it. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I know all of you will. Uh, The report from the Show Me Institute says there are more cities and counties without an earnings tax in the United States than there are cities and counties with the earnings tax. Yeah, that's a shame for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, their loss. Kansas City's population trend says a lot about 
I think in part about where the intersex affects people's decisions more, where they live. There are more cities and towns without police departments than ones that have them. Right. That's Kansas City's been growing substantially faster than St. Louis, so I'm, I, I, I think there is. But is Kansas City's population growing significantly? Uh, no, it's not. No, it's, it's declining. Yeah. City of Kansas City. So is my interest in this topic. Let's <laughs> go to another one. For some, Kansas City is becoming marijuana nirvana. Living up to a campaign pledge, Mayor Clinton Lucas is now offering a pardon to anyone convicted of marijuana crimes by the city's municipal court. Those seeking a pardon must go online and complete an application form. Lucas says he supports legalizing recreational marijuana, but suspects it will be a long time before Missouri legislators agree. Well, let's start with the legal aspect. Now, we have an attorney with us. What does a pardon from Mayor Lucas mean, Art? Well, a pardon means that anyone convicted of that particular uh, ordinance violation, if pardoned by the mayor, uh, would have that pardon removed from his record and would be able to lawfully answer, or, for instance, on an employment application that he had not been convicted. Um, so one of the questions that's been asked around the community a lot is, does the mayor even have the authority uh, to, to pardon for that? And the answer is obviously yes. Every mayor, every governor, everyone who served as president has the ability to pardon for convictions under their jurisdiction. But the fact that that question is being asked kind of intrigues me because uh, the pardon has been in the charter since the 1940s. And it's only, it's being asked, I wonder if it's being asked of Lucas because he's young or because he's inexperienced or because he's black. Because uh, well, I, I because, suspect none of that. None. I think it's being yeah. asked because no one can recall a time when a mayor of Kansas City announced a pardon for anything. Right. Well, there have been pardons off and on for, for a long time. So far, I've only seen <clears throat> this question about whether Lucas has the authority to pardon being asked by whites. I have not seen any oh, black asking that question. Wow. So I wonder if he's running into some kind of a racial headwind. Not at For all. anybody who wants to know, it's in chapter 44, I, 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 section yeah. 8, and they can look well, it up. Well, let me, I, I think let me, the electorate, well, he said he's going to do it. The electorate voted for him on the yeah. terms. It's like, yeah, that's not racist. Not a secret that he was going yeah. to do it. But, but it's being questioned only by whites in the last six months. Well, who's questioning It's on Twitter, it's on Facebook. People have been asking whether, he, whether in fact, this mayor has that authority, wow. which he clearly Well, if it's does. on Twitter, it must be a legitimate question, yeah. so right? Uh, let me ask you another game? question. <laughs> let, let me do that a follow-up. Uh, we oh know the goodness. president has a wide-ranging ability to pardon. Does the mayor have wide-ranging power to pardon? Can he pardon other crimes? Any conviction under the city ordinances in the city courts, yes, he may Are those generally it. minor offenses? Well, it's going to include stealing, assault, domestic violence. Traffic? So there's all kinds traffic of things. Violations. Traffic, yes. Oh, yes. good to know. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, help me. It's uh, not so. often used. I've never even heard of it. I don't think yeah. it has anything to do with Quentin other than he just asked the question. Yeah. Well, I think, too, I mean, agree or disagree, uh, he promise made, promise kept. He said he's going to do it. He did it. <clears throat> good, good point. Good deal for the electorate. Chris, has public opinion shifted markedly on the use of marijuana? I think in the point data we're seeing, it really has shifted. We're seeing a lot of people um, who look at it as something that's inevitable at this point. We have more states that are now on board, others who are coming on board. Um, they see this as an end to a prohibition type era. And more than that, they're looking at something like 
the pardon as recognizing that more of the people who are impacted by the pardon tend to be within the minority communities. Right. More people who are plus. prosecuted and yeah. convicted tend to be persons who are black and brown. So a pardon gives them a better chance at earning economically later, and I think that's what the community really voted but, but, for. But right. people shouldn't yeah. get too excited because they can be prosecuted under state law, county law, and federal uh, law, right. can they not, for marijuana possession and marijuana use? Yes, but no one is actually prosecuting simple possession no. virtually anywhere in the Especially nation. County, unless there's violence it's too much work. To it. Right. Yeah. Too little outcome. Yeah. But well, you know, it's interesting is the fact you got baby boomers, uh, aka the Woodstock generation. You have millennials, and that combines for the majority of our population. And I think it's really almost inevitable before we go down the recreational path. Well, Annie, how about making marijuana legal in Missouri and/or Kansas, and garner the tax revenues that Colorado gathers? That, that's definitely on our short list. And as the medical marijuana practice gets engaged in Missouri, which is well underway now, I think it'll show us a path on how people use it, react to it, and how welcoming it is. And that once we can monetize it in a tax, I think there will be a lot of enthusiasm for it. So, Art, if we legalize marijuana, what other drugs should be legal? All drugs should be decriminalized. One thing... Is there a difference between Wait, decriminalized and illegal? Uh, is there well, a distinction? It, it, it's not prosecuted. It, 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 I believe that everything... I, we've been waging a war on drugs for 40 years at cost of hundreds of billions of dollars and we're losing. All we're doing is enriching cartels, we're uh, uh, grossly inflating our prison population, we're militarizing law enforcement and we spend more and more money on it and we get further behind. We're completely losing the war. We should take half the money we're spending on the war and, and spend it on education, prevention and treatment. And the other half... And potholes. And save, and potholes, and yeah. sa save the other half of potholes. That's right. Are you in uh, accord with Art on this? No, I, no I, I think you have some limitations. It's like, I mean, we have limits on alcohol volume. I mean, there are limits. I think there's reasonable to look at things and say pragmatically, um, you, do we really want to have LSD available for whomever? Uh, that seems irresponsible to me. Heroin addiction is a sickness. It's not a crime. And that we should be spending on prevention, treatment, and education, not on criminalization. All right, let's dismiss this and move ahead. <laughs> Super Tuesday is called that for a reason. On March the 3rd, about 40% of the population will be in a state holding a presidential primary. Doing well on Super Tuesday can propel a candidate to victory at the convention or condemn him or her to political extinction. Right now, some political analysts believe the Democratic race for the presidential nomination will lead to a brokered convention, meaning no candidate has enough delegates to be nominated on the first ballot. Now, no one knows for sure if that will happen, but one of our panelists surely has some inside information. So from inside the Democratic National Committee, Chris, what is the state of the Democratic presidential race? I think we're really early on and I think um, it's been interesting and I think good for the party that we've seen a lot of different ideas from the middle to the progressive which have uh, put those ideas up on the stage, allowed voters to see them. We've had competitive contests. Um, we're seeing a real debate of ideas and we're seeing a change in the way that that our contests are being held that welcome more people to participate. I think all of those things are good. I think we have front-loaded the race so much bringing this early to this early in March 
that very quickly we're going to have an idea of how this is going to go. And I think you're going to see some candidates look to drop out. I think you're going to see um, options where candidates may combine their delegates, look to uh, endorse another candidate, um, support another candidate. I don't know if we're, we're saying, I would be surprised to see a brokered convention. Uh, I've heard several political analysts say something similar to what you said at the outset. They say, you know, in this campaign, it's getting late early. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. it. We're coming down to, because we established so many delegates early, after Super Tuesday, we're going to really establish the front runner. Do you think Senator Sanders at this point is the favorite to win the nomination? Um, he's certainly a contender. I, I don't know if we can say right now if he is the absolute favorite because such a small number of delegates have been established. Mike, I, I, I'll say he's the favorite. I'm not a Sanders guy, but Warren's my candidate. But Sanders is going to run away with it. Biden is stubbing his toe in uh, South Carolina. Super Tuesday in California, there are 418 delegates, and you have to have 15% to be viable and get a single delegate. And only Sanders and Warren now are above 15%. The others are well below it. Sanders could come out of California and Texas with an insurmountable lead. So, Ron, let's hear from a Republican for a change of pace. Right, yeah. uh, how, how are Republicans looking at this Democratic primary? Well, I think, first of all, I don't think we see a debate of ideas. I think we see a bunch of people saying Donald Trump's a bad guy. That's their primary platform, it seems to be. But I think the bigger thing with uh, Bernie Sanders is that here's a guy who won that in 2016. I mean, he should have been the nominee, but that got stolen from him. I think you run a huge risk in terms of his base. He's got support from, obviously, uh, uh, really a broad base within the party, but primarily he's got a lot of millennial support. And so you have these young people who've gotten involved in the process. They worked it for him in 2016. They really got him the delegates. He should have been the nominee. Uh, and then if they did that to him again in 2020, I think you lose a voter base. I think you say, say those guys walk away discouraged. So, Annie, uh, in the first debate that Michael Bloomberg was in, he performed extremely badly, just terrible. He was a little bit better in the second one. Does he have any chance at this point? He does have a chance because he has a lot of money and he's apparently willing to spend it. So even if somebody comes out pretty strongly after Super Tuesday, he can stay in and see if he can make any headway. Um, but I kind of agree with you guys. I think um, Bernie's probably going to come out and um, the colleagues who are also running are going to dump on him at some point just because he's truly not a Democrat. He's actually an independent. He's a socialist. And I think the... the uh, all the rest of the candidates who are Democrats are not really going to rally behind him. Is Bernie the guy that Donald Trump would most like to run against? I think so, but the polls keep moving on that, so it's hard to say. And actually, this polling stuff is so right. I, I so hard. One of, the, one of the stories that doesn't get told enough is that in the New Hampshire primary, in the Republican side, Donald Trump hovered around 90 percent. So 10 percent of the Republicans who went to the polls wrote in someone else. And that's not a good sign when you're a president looking for real life. Not a good time for millionaires and yeah. billionaires. <laughs> Let's go to the soapbox now for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each to elevate, capitulate, or captivate. Up first is Chris. Mine is a roast for the Kansas Democratic Party. This is the first time that 
the party is running a state-run primary. Now, for all of us who saw the damage that went on in Iowa, a state-run primary allows people to return a ballot by mail, rank choice voting, and hopes to get more people to participate with an exact numbers. Boy, isn't that exactly what we need right now. I never thought I'd see the day that you'd be criticizing the Democratic Party in Kansas. <laughs> what a breakthrough, Annie. <clears throat> So my thoughts today are about coronavirus or COVID-19. I think we need to just remain calm, have some faith that our taxpayer dollars are actually going to help us eradicate what's going on, and just continually wash your hands. If somebody, don't cough on anybody because that'll make them nervous. So just, <laughs> just stay calm and wash your hands. All right, Ron. Okay, I have a roast. Uh, my roast is for the Kansas City Star and Megan Marshall, who is a candidate for Lee Summit School Board, uh, for once again perpetuating a false narrative uh, dividing that community. Marshall was invited to an interview with the PAC, uh, decided she couldn't make it. They offered her alternative dates, uh, and it's all documented in emails, and she decided not to show up. And she goes to the star and says, it's because I'm black. And it's like, it's, no, it's not true at all. Uh, in fact, one candidate who was at, with her at an event the night of the interviews went to the PAC interview as well. So it was doable. She just chose not to. So it's just wrong. It's uh, just inappropriate to throw out an unjust narrative and divide a community on race. Uh, school board and Lee Summit. School board and Lee Summit. Yes, sir. Uh, Art? Mike, this is one of those kind of mark my words, because I'm probably wrong, uh, roast. I'm roasting President Trump for naming Vice President Pence to lead the task force on this coronavirus thing because I believe we're going to have community spread and we're going to have a large, if probably not pandemic, but I think it's going to be viewed as a failure on the part of the administration. And Trump is then going to blame Pence for this and use that to replace Pence with Nikki Haley uh, in the run for re-election. That's just a prediction. Doesn't sound bad, does it? Oh. <laughs> And finally, here is a, tuck, a toast to Tucker Carlson of the Fox News Channel analyzing the Democratic race for president. He said, if it comes down to billionaire capitalist Michael Bloomberg against Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders, it could be summarized this way. Greed is good versus weed is good. Do you understand that, Ron? I think I figured okay. that out. Okay. And that is Ruckus for this week. We're off for a couple of weeks, making room for fundraising and special programming. We're set to return on March the 19th. Now for the Ruckets and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks very much for watching and good night.